0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm your host today, Ben Wilson. And today we're going to be talking with Rosario, who is an employee at NIME and has a very fascinating history. We were just talking before we started the, the podcast recording about some some history of ML and data science work and algorithms, and we're going to you know, dive a little bit into that today. We're also going to talk about tooling. Uh, it's a common thing in our recent podcasts about, you know, what are the development challenges for doing, you know, different levels of solution engineering for problems, and we figured it'd be really exciting to talk to, you know, somebody who's who's working with and, and working on a tool that enables that in uh, in a slightly different paradigm than
1: some of the stuff we were discussing in previous episodes. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So if you go to topenddevscom slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, Like I said, TopEndDevs.com slash resume will get you that, and uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. So before we get started, uh, Rosaria, could you introduce yourself, please?
2: Um, Thank you. Uh, Welcome, everybody. So I'm uh, Rosaria Silipo. Um, I work as a VP of Data Science Evangelism at NINE. Yeah. So, this is, uh, I've been working in the data science space for, uh, I don't know, I can't even remember <laughs> when I started <laughs> until since the early 90s in the data analysis space. Yeah. Um, so, it's
0: back yeah. before people were uh, coining the term data scientist. Yeah,
2: if you want, I can give you a history of the, the how it was called because I did the whole loop, right? <laughs> I mm-hmm. always tell that to the young, uh, hired uh, employees. Uh, that I did the whole loop. I started in the uh, the beginning of the nineties it was artificial intelligence. then it changed to uh data mining uh then it changed to big data because you remember at the beginning of the two thousand then there was the data mining back considering on you know on a large scale of data. then it became data science and now we're back to the artificial intelligence.
0: <laughs> yeah, some of the fun funky job titles i've had had in the past are stuff like. Advanced analytics engineer, um, data modeler, and analyst, just plain analyst, data scientist, and machine learning engineer. Um, really strange how every one of those titles, except for maybe machine learning engineer, all those other titles are all the same human, same skill set, effectively. We just like to apply labels to things. Yeah. So back. Back when you were saying when you got started in, in the 90s for uh, when they were calling it artificial intelligence back then, um, what was it like for developing a solution?
2: So uh, uh, I did my thesis at that time. It was on neural networks. Um, So we had to program it. Um, I mean, maybe not alone. There was a whole team, a whole group uh, at the university, but it was a lot of self-made code. Um, So there were no libraries that you could download and reuse or or things like that. Um, So it was a lot of C, C++, and and then writing the code or adding that part of the code that would help uh, make the one step further in the uh, accuracy, in the one percent accuracy <laughs> of the classification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so that that's how we used to work. Um, so this is uh, yeah. So when you also got a consulting job, uh, it was always programming at the end, um, as I said, C or C plus um, plus, and also the moving the data. It was uh, just. Programming, And then you would move the data from one side, write them in a data warehouse, for example, uh, and then the data warehouse would be, uh, the data would be processed with the in the program and then the data warehouse would be a database.
0: So when you're talking about data movement, and, and to any listeners out there who had never had to move data prior to modern tooling in the clouds or anything that, like a, a software SaaS vendor who makes all of this somewhat simple these days, um, it's non-trivial, right? If you're interfacing with the outputs of a mainframe and you have this proprietary data, data format, you have to write serializers and deserializers, and you have to you know, write, write basically data streams that move bulk data from one place to another. And what was the development lifecycle like for that? and you're like okay we have this new data set that we need to provide insights on and the data is sitting in the mainframe how long would it take to get something into a state where you could even start doing feature engineering work
2: oh yeah (laughs) that was uh yeah it was a long time so um you would work in a lab um and if something was not already available because somebody else had developed it then it would be a classic uh, software development cycle so you would have a uh, um, to write the development the testing the productionizing so the whole thing it would take, depending on how complicated it was it, it would take a few weeks depending on on yeah what the task was but moving data around it was already like a few weeks work absolutely also because you had to do some aggregation I mean you I was talking about data warehousing. Uh, so when you build a data warehouse, you need to uh define some KPI or some kind of an aggregation that moves that reduces the d- dimensionality of the data from whatever it is that you collected raw uh, to some more informative uh numbers. Um so to reach these more informative numbers, you had to perform some kind of operations. And so depending on how complicated these operations were, it would take a few um a few weeks. Uh, I noticed that's another thing. So um we're going through history. Um, so I noticed that uh, um, the, it used to be the data warehouse. Then during the big data, everybody was uh, lashing at the data warehousing. And they were saying that with the big data, you just need a data lake. You throw everything in there. And then you don't think about that anymore. And when you need it, you pick it up. And and, and then you extract the data. And, and then, I don't know, you do whatever it's supposed to be with, done with the data. But now I see that they are going back to the concept of the data warehouse. Because... Um, so I see the point of just putting data somewhere and maybe you will need them someday. But to have a, a, an organized repository of de- this data that describes descriptive data for your problem, of course it's priceless because it saves you a lot of, uh, of time for the next analysis and the next the next analysis and you know for the years to come. So this is uh, I, I see that there is a, a comeback of the data warehouse.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. It's something that, that I've noticed as well, too, because I'm old enough to have like done stuff prior to Hadoop and, and, and all, all of that sort of thing, where if you're going to talk about creating a feature set, yeah, that, that's a large investment of time and resources where you're forced to apply engineering principles and you know agile principles generally from that time period that I was doing it. Where you would say, all right, what is our our MVP here? What like what are the what are the the things that we absolutely have to have in this data set? And then what are the nice to have? So if we have extra time, we'll add them. But you would write pipelines and develop you know data transaction code to get that clean data into a, a data warehouse, and then. The reason that you would have to do that is just because of that time commitment and how much money is on the line for the value of that. And then the advent of, like you said, the data lake, it was like requirements got relaxed. People wanted to move faster because it seemed easier. And nowadays, when people are trying to get production machine learning solutions out there in the data science world, they're now saying, oh, we need to think about stuff like testing and data validation checks and monitoring. And it's like, yeah, that's what everybody was doing 20 years ago because you had to, because there's so much money on the line. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's,
2: it was a problem of time, of course, because you need it and you need it and you can reuse it. It was also a problem of money because you didn't have that much space on the hard disk. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to it had to fit. So you could have, for example, the tapes, and then you would store the tapes for the original data just in case somebody wanted to see them. But on the hard disk, you would only keep what was absolutely necessary. And of course, if you reduce the the size uh, to something that fit, of course, that was another necessity. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I feel old. <laughs>
0: I mean, even if you're talking about throwing even more money at at server farms back in the day, uh, I worked at a couple of companies where you'd walk into the, the server room, or if you had access, of course, or you just see it through darkened glass, you kind of look in and all the blinking lights, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then you look and you're like, wait a minute, those are sands. And how many tape racks are in there or how many, how many uh, hard disks are in each of those sands and you start counting and you're like at $400 a pop, even if they're using mid tier hardware here for these disks and they're changing out 70 of these a day because of just drive failures. You start thinking about how much money that is. It's amazing about just how that's, that's changed nowadays with the cloud and, and the fact that you can now have You can have a a laptop sitting on your desk that has more storage space than an entire server SAN had (laughs) 25 years ago. It's mind blowing.
2: Yeah, and and then talking again about the time, I remember we were doing some predictions on um, heart attacks, something like that. So we had the Mm -hmm. ECG signal, and we were supposed to extract the measures from the ECG signal. So there was a lot of feature preparation at the end uh, to be able to feed a neural network. So most of the work was in the in the preparation in the um, feature um, space preparation. So in the data preparation to feed the neural network. So you had to extract that wave. You had to do that. You had to do that. It, it was yeah, it was long. And then you had to make sure that it was correct because if you give them uh, wrong measures, then the neural network gives you wrong predictions. Um, so. Yeah, so to was, extract definitely.
0: So to extract meaningful data. From something of that data volume. Were you just doing Fourier transformations to get like change points?
2: Yeah. So we were we were uh no, <laughs> it was many years ago, but we were doing the, <laughs> the derivatives and the second derivative, and then we would find the the changing point, for example, where the QRS complex is starting, and then we would do all the um uh, derivatives to find the the, the change in slope. Um, and then in some other analysis, we would measure the r-to-r distance, and then we would perform a Fourier transformation or a wavelet transformation, and then we would get um, the spectrum uh, to analyze, I don't know, differences now, I don't remember exactly, but to analyze differences in people who would die earlier or would have a heart attack or something, so to see if there was any predictive feature uh, for that. But it was not automated Um yeah,
0: right. That was the the point with that that question was. I remember many many years ago, I was working on a problem in a factory where we had it was millisecond level data, but we wanted to check the performance of basically irregularities in the signal uh, over a certain moving threshold. So it wasn't it wasn't a stationary series of data. Uh, there was some sort of trend associated with the recipe that was being used. And that wasn't captured directly as a parameter anywhere, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> in the raw data output. So uh, I was tasked with like, hey, Ben, like figure out where each of the peaks are. And I was like, uh, but I don't have the the slope of the data. I mean, I, I can infer the slope. So I wrote, you know, very simple, basic algebraic equations to like, determine what that slope was i was like all right i got that now i need to find a magnitude from that slope and i'll just cut the data and find all the peaks and as we were saying before we started recording those statisticians uh all those people that were you know this the 65 and older crew that was working at that company all of the geniuses who knew so much uh they saw what I was doing. One of them happened to be walking by my desk and was like, what are you working on, son? And, and I was trying to explain. I was like, I'm trying to you know, get the all of these these inflection points. And he's like, have you heard of Fast Fourier Transformation? You can take that whole thing. And he's like, just use this algorithm. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know where to get that, that equation. He's like, all right, give me a half an hour. I'll send it to you. And a half an hour later, he has it all written out in Python, because I was doing all of this in Python, uh, Python 2.3 or something way back in the day. And he wasn't a native Python developer or anything. He was just a savant. And he had that algorithm and a clever way of implementing it seared into his brain and he. And I asked him later, I was like, Well, how did you do that so fast? He's like, Well, I can I can do it for you in Fortran, I can do it for you in in uh COBOL, and I can also do it for you in uh in C based languages. I he's like, Python's easy, I just figured this'll work. He's like, I just used this, like wrote a simple Python library and I ran it and it was so insanely fast and performant and worked exactly for what I was trying to do that it, like that gentleman saved me probably eight weeks of work due to his knowledge. Um, but nowadays, you can get that package. You, you can go in. for
2: everything, yeah. Yeah,
0: you can download Fast Forward Transformation. Uh, Absolutely. PyPy. So with the ability nowadays of of people who are doing applications modeling work or data science work. Um, do you think something's lost in, in the the world of that practice today with people not being able to, or not having had to go through that early on in their careers?
2: That's an interesting question. Uh, so, uh, Uh, I I put myself in there too. Now it it has become so easy that sometimes you just apply and you are not completely sure of what you are applying. So when I uh, train people, um, you know, in machine learning or um, also in signal processing, even though now signal processing is not so popular anymore. um, But when I train them, I often ask them to calculate uh, some things by hand. Um, So to uh, or to write a, so really to write step by step uh the algorithm because they they have to realize um, what happens inside otherwise you just drag and drop or you just use the library and then you don't know what what's you know what's coming out what's coming in and at least a few times in their life they need to go they, they need to do it for so for real uh, by hand or yeah yeah i
0: mean i, I couldn't agree more yeah. with With some of the advancements in productivity that are out there, you know, your company's tool is a a perfect example of something that empowers the informed to save many, many hours and many days of effort by saying, okay, I know the tools that I need. I know the components in order to solve this problem because I understand what these algorithms can and can't do and what these steps and these transformations and, and, and things do. So I can, in a very low code or pseudo no code environment, sort of create a DAG of operations that need to happen and get that solution into a state where I can evaluate it much faster than if I had to roll my own and build everything from scratch. So it's great that these tools exist. Um, but if you don't know what those those components are, if you don't know it, like in most in most software suites that are out there that attempt to solve this, that attempt to save a lot of time for for practitioners, you know, SAS has like Enterprise Miner, which is sort of a graphical interface to a certain degree, and then you can you know of course supplement that with with SAS scripting code all the way to you know tools like data robot which is you know similar with that, their graphical user interface in the hands of the uninformed do you think it's it's potentially dangerous for a company like let, let's say we have a company that just says hey i need data scientists i'm going to hire 10 people straight out of school and i'm going to we're going to buy this tool and we're going to we're going to start making millions of dollars with these these 10 people
2: uh, this is another interesting question. So uh, there is a colleague of mine. Uh, he says that if you give him NIME, it's like to have a bazooka, and he doesn't know how to use it. So he does all the drag and drop so with all the possible you know, algorithms, and then he gets some result, and he doesn't know how to interpret that. But I have also another colleague who says that... Uh, um, as long as you know the basics, you don't need to know, that, you know for example, that uh, if I have this kind of data set that the measure of the entropy is, uh, I don't know, that much. And I mean, you just trust the algorithm and you know that it's calculating the right entropy and then the decision tree at the end gives you some classification um so I, I yeah i don't know i used to think that uh, um it's it's like a bazooka and then you need to make sure that you know what you're doing but i think that uh, there are some uh, so as it is now that was a few years ago as it is now um there are some consolidated and standard processes to perform some to train and deploy some machine learning models um so these standardized procedures they Somehow uh, gives you some shield <laughs> against the possible mistakes that you can make. Um, for example, you need to know uh, that uh, you know if you have a data set, you have a training set, you have a test set. What happens with the test set is the measure that you know you can trust. What happens with the training set, you can use it, but maybe you cannot trust that much. The error that you have on the training set, you can you cannot trust that much. So, beside once you have um, standardized this. Um, um best practices uh that in theory should be uh, what protects you from making the big 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 mistakes um i don't know I think the truth is in the middle you still need to know something uh as i said i i usually to the new hires I give them a problem and they have to develop it they have to do the calculations by hand of course easy numbers but and uh, to understand what what's actually happening inside the algorithm um on the other side, it's also true that, uh, yeah, so that if you know a few patterns, standard patterns in the um, process of uh, uh, training, for example, a machine learning model, that should cover <laughs> the biggest disaster. So, I, uh, yeah, so this is, this is an interesting topic, though, because uh, now that, in my opinion, uh, data science or AI, so they have reached a bit of a maturity level, uh, there is a bit of an engineering around that, uh, and engineering uh, so it's no more it's not anymore a research area uh, but the 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 fact that you have developed some standard processes allows you to you know if you follow the procedure uh, maybe you don't uh, you don't make the big mistakes um, and this this is usually what happens when uh, a topic uh, leaves the research environment and goes a bit more into the engineering stream uh, where you know you just try to control it. Uh, without going into the tiny, tiny little details. So maybe maybe now it's changing a bit. It used to be definitely that uh, you would have a bazooka and then <laughs> you don't know what you were doing.
0: Well, yeah, or sometimes it's just a landmine where, it, you know, bazooka is directional.
2: Landmine is <laughs> you're an holding answer. something
0: that's active. You're going to take yourself out and your whole team out. And if you're not careful, your whole company. <gasps> I mean, I've seen implementations that, at, at companies talking to practitioners that are not quite, they don't quite understand what the algorithm's doing. They just, you know, either read a blog post or, you know, read a a really high level book on ML, like on applied ML. And they're like, well, I hear this package won a lot of Kaggle competitions or this algorithm Mm -hmm. is really famous. So. Therefore, it must be good for all problems and nothing could be further from the truth. And a yeah. lot of times when I've talked to to groups like that, they're talking to me because they have an issue with something that they built. It was working great for the first three months. And then all of a sudden the predictions now make it's not that they're not making money anymore, it's they're actively losing money because yeah. they're relying on those decisions from a model that overfits so poorly to their, their, you know, training data set. They didn't even know that they needed to retrain or how to retrain properly or how to evaluate. And their code base, because they're using, you know, either derived examples from blog posts or something they copied out of a book somewhere, or they just took somebody's Kaggle sub- submission and copied all of the code and put yeah, it into yeah. a, a notebook. They don't understand many things about it. They don't understand how the code works so from that engineering perspective. It's a black box to them. And then from an algorithm perspective, they don't know why the model is overfitting. Like they don't know that, like you mentioned, that that entropy calculation. It's shocking to me how many people I've asked, like, hey, how does how does a random forest decide where to split on for regression versus a classifier? And they go I always when I'm teaching people, I always send them like, all right, here's the homework you're gonna do. You're gonna go read about differential differential entropy and you're gonna tell me what that means and how how an algorithm could, could calculate this and how does it actually physically do it from an engineering standpoint. And you see the light come on in, in somebody's eyes when they start finally understanding like oh that's how this algorithm works. Oh, I really shouldn't have this data in there then because it's a binary and it's just splitting continuously on that binary yep
2: yeah when I, when I do when I uh, do the courses when I teach, um, I usually I have a little competition inside the, the class and then I say, well let's see who gets the highest accuracy and there is always always one student always who comes back with a hundred percent (laughs) accuracy always every time and then then I usually tell them if, if it's if it's too if it looks too good to be true then it probably is too good to be true but you know maybe not I don't know but you should at least double check yeah yeah it's um Another issue, uh, as you say, that we, they, they usually take the most popular algorithm of the time and, <laughs> and then they use it. And then you get these humongous models to, I don't know, recognize, I don't know, some easy, easy task if you are male or female or something like that. So something extremely, extremely easy. And they, they could have done it with a much, much smaller uh, uh, model with, a you know, much easier. I remember. Uh, there was another colleague of mine. He did the, uh, try to predict the winner of the European Soccer Cup. In uh, that was in uh, July, mm-hmm. and uh, so he he managed. He predicted uh, who would run the final uh, game for the European Soccer Soccer Cup. And I remember that I was reading what he was he, he did, and he actually used a linear regression. <laughs> and and did, I said, "What? So that something so." Uh, relatively random because soccer is a relatively random game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, something so random and you just managed to do the right prediction, training a linear regression. I mean, yeah, the data, okay. He downloaded all the data from uh, the FIFA website mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, you know, just with the linear regression, he was able to, um, to predict the right uh, teams uh, in the final game. So not even a yep. deep learning, not even a complicated, complicated, uh, I don't know, a gun or something or some <laughs> some super complicated network. So, yeah, sometimes it's it, that's also the other problem, right? They don't know all possible algorithms and they go yes. for the, the latest and greatest and possible and they end up with a humongous model that they can't handle because it, to mm-hmm. put in deployment something so big and making sure that it doesn't overfit is not that easy. And, uh, you know, something like that could have been much easier uh, done with a. Uh, a smaller model, a traditional model, so something like that. That's another, uh, yeah, another side of um, sometimes not knowing what you are doing um, with um, with the algorithms. Yeah. Hey
1: there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development-focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people Uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time and we'll just uh, so somebody can come on they can ask their question and then we'll just rotate people through so we'll we'll mute one person unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion so we'll do that for like an hour hour and a half and then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on gather town and so after the the meetup and the call. What we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in december the beginning of december we're starting the first week of december and um you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next i have one in mind but i want to see where everybody's at so there you go yeah that brings me to
0: a a little competition that we had at a previous company that i was at you'll probably like this story um the the challenge that was given from the uh The head of of engineering to everybody on the team basically everybody in the department so software engineers and data scientists data engineers everybody got a chance to come up with a way to solve this problem and it was just for fun what it was was photos of all employees and they basically had a photo studio that took a full body image of every employee on their first day into into work. And they wanted to determine just, hey, can you predict male or female? That's all we wanted to do. So we had submissions from software engineers and and data engineers and a couple of data scientists that everybody just went to the latest inception model they they were like, Oh, I'm gonna use PyTorch, or I'm gonna use TensorFlow, and I'm gonna retrain on all of our employee images that have been labeled, and I'm gonna need some GPU instances so that I can, you know, get enough epochs on this. And and they're they're tweaking, you know, you know, the layer specifications and and trying all of these different things that they were seeing on these websites. And then me and this other uh, who is an ex-data engineer, and me and this other guy we were like, I bet there's a there's an easier way that we can do this. So what's the average height of a woman versus the average height of a man? And For sure, we knew that the, the camera tripod was fixed in location. So it was always the same aspect ratio and the same distance to where people were standing. So you have a fixed reference of each image about how big a human is relative to the, the, the distance. <laughs> so all we did was just use very simple... Uh, like JPEG modification tools, we just took, you know, basically rastered over each each image until we saw a change in the distribution of pixel color because it was on this this like blindingly white background. So we knew where somebody's hair mm-hmm. started, and we just counted what was what was the row at which we got a an indication of human skin or hair. And then we just said, let's do a distribution of that and say, okay, where does everybody fall? And we hit something like 97% accuracy (laughs) on that. Everybody else couldn't get above about 70%.
2: And because probably the complex network that they were using was trying to implement exactly the same thing, but they overfit because they had too many parameters probably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we, we went back into some of the the deep learning implementations and we we basically started pulling out different layers and seeing what the deep learning CNN was seeing at certain layers and just like basically re-rendering a, an mm-hmm. image from that. And it was picking up on stuff like the, the shape outline of clothing and the what it seemed like was sort of posture it was detecting. Like what is the shape of somebody's Mm -hmm. legs and feet? And like that's completely irrelevant. So there wasn't enough training data because it wasn't. We didn't have you know five hundred thousand employees or something. And what I was explaining to everybody who did those approaches was like, I can't understand why it got that. You know, you got your guys' work so much better. It's like, well, you're you're reusing a model that was that was designed to look at just general images from you know Google images and classify many
2: more yeah yeah
0: so many different classes in there and that image, that network is massive and it's also expensive to train it properly so yeah i've always been a proponent of like simple is best in in ml solutions yeah
2: when they ask me how they should start and how so i always tell them start simple and then if it doesn't work it's easier to make it more complicated it's it's much more complicated to go the other direction to start complicated and make it more simple
0: 100% i could yeah. not agree more
2: yeah yeah always always start simple you might be surprised
0: and it's fast too so it's
2: fast too exactly if you make a mistake it's not a big Uh, issue and you understand because usually the simpler the model the easier it is to understand what it does so maybe you also get some uh, insight on whatever the model is trying to do
0: and also another big initiative that people have these days and and i hear it from practitioners that are serious about getting ml into production but their their years of experience aren't there yet so they're like hey uh, I've been doing, I've been a data scientist for two or three years. So I have a lot of experience, like, not really, but maybe as compared to your peers at your company, you do, but they're like, well, management is telling us that we need, we need to do bias and fairness measurement on our model.
2: Mm,
0: yeah. Like, okay. Um, and we also need to explain a- about why it's making the predictions. So I heard this thing, you know, called Shap I'm, I'm going to get Shapley values. And start looking at you know how people are evaluating things like that, and then when they test that out, they're like, "Well, it's it's really hard to get this, or it's, it takes a long time to get these results from from a deep learning model." Um, but then I tried it on a linear regressor, and it was finished in less than two seconds. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, what the linear regression is made of. It's it's just coefficients (laughs) on a very simple equation. It's pretty easy to chug through a bunch of data with that.
2: I think also, uh, so another topic is that often, um, and this has been with the um, uh, start of the deep learning, this has been a bit forgotten. Uh, The more you prepare the data, the easier is uh, the job for the model to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there is this data preparation part that is more like a, a data engineering uh, task, but of course it, it it makes you understand what your what your data is, and it also makes the job for the upcoming model much easier. Uh, it removes the noise, it removes the the wrong things. It uh, so it, it gives the it prepares the information ready to be used for the model. So I think also the data engineering part. Uh, of our job is a bit underestimated. Um, sometimes we, I think we should do more of that instead of just throwing things into, <laughs> into a network and then let's see what the network does. I mean, yeah, of course, then the, the, a deep learning network is very powerful, sure. So maybe can do also the data engineering part uh, that we used to do before, um, you know, uh, by ourselves. But still, uh, I think uh, even if a, a deep learning network is very powerful, the the more, the cleaner and the more informative the data you give, the, the better it is. But this I, it's a I have to say I'm a bit biased because I'm an engineer, as <laughs> my education. So I think that uh, you know the part of data of uh, engineering around the model is an important part. A lot of these fantastic models that you see around uh, AI models actually it's a, it's the, they are masterworks of data engineering um, because mm-hmm. they prepare the data. They also export the model in a way that it's useful. Um, So, yeah, I think the data engineering is another part of that uh, is often underestimated.
0: I couldn't agree more. Uh, And I have seen that in a lot of people (laughs) I've talked to that get into the profession of data science, thinking that all they're going to be doing is effectively like a Kaggle competition. Or like, hey, I'm just going to try to get the greatest accuracy I can. Or I'm going to get the (laughs) most And they. They, they think that, that the process of creative modeling is what that job entails. And I've always told, you know, I've had people that are still in college, you know, contact me on LinkedIn. I'm like, hey, could I talk to you for an hour or sometime? Sure, yeah. I'll tell you exactly what it's like working as a data scientist and as an ML engineer and as a software engineer. And then you can choose your path about which one sounds the most interesting to you. And it it's always interesting how their perception of what data science work is, is so divorced from reality where, and I tell them, hey, 85% of your work has nothing to do with models. It's data acquisition, data cleansing, statistical analysis of those data sets. It's determining, hey, do I have a potential issue if I feed it into this algorithm? If I have you know covariance in the data set how do you check for that how do you independently validate the the co- like the, the variance amongst uh, these features that are going in there how do you validate that you have you don't have spurious signals in your data how do you remove those and then the other 40% within that chunk is how do you pitch your idea to a business
2: ah that's the whole communication thing yeah and it's critical. Yeah, it is. It is so often they ask. I I I did a lot of hiring in, until yesterday. <laughs> so and in the in in the hiring I see a lot of CVs and there are a lot of projects and they all end up with accuracy ninety nine point ninety nine percent or this you know this kind of measures and. And that's not all. Uh, our job is not. I mean, at the end, if you if you train a model, it's a no-define or it's a line of instruction in Python, or so. It's it's like it, the whole thing around that is much bigger. How you get the data, how you transform it, how you check that is that it's not noisy, how you interpret the result is the is this uh, um, uh, accuracy significant or not? So these kind of things, and then of course communication. Um, I. I need people in the group that are able to talk uh, and explain what the model is doing, how they have trained it, how they have put it together and why it's a winning model for, you know, the task that it was uh, requested. And if it's not possible to get uh, these particular uh, requirements with the budget and time that the stakeholders are asking, I need somebody who's able to explain that to them and set the right expectations yeah absolutely. Um, this is something that I think it should be taught in uh, in um, academia or in in the courses that people do. Um, they need to understand that uh, it, 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 communication skills is important. and then another thing that they need to understand is that uh, creating the model, the fantastic model that they create uh, is one thing but then they also need to use it uh, need to be able to export this model and the whole deployment part, uh, it's usually not uh, taught, or I don't know, somehow it doesn't get into their head after the university. Um, when I am invited to, I sometimes I run challenges uh, for, for univer- so for classes at universities. And uh, I always want to have a challenge that builds the model, and then I also want to see how they use the model that they have built. So they have to build the <laughs> deployment workflow or application. And, um, and every time and I, I, I do the little guest lecture in preparation of the challenge, and every time I reach the that slide where I show that, then you build another application, and the application uses this model and does that, and for example presents the result on a website or I don't know does some prediction that are useful for something. They they're jaw drop because they they're <laughs> completely. It's like they you know some something in their brain open because they see what is useful for. And uh, you know, yes. and then you can actually make money out of that because you can use it in a particular way or you can save people because you can use it in a particular way or you can, but they see the implications. It's not just an accuracy number. And that's definitely something that uh, I would like to see more, for example, when I receive a CV um, because this, yeah, sure, you have done the, the model. You got nice accuracy. It's very nice. It shows that you are... Um, resourceful and knowledgeable, but I need also some practical uh, application at the end. In a company, you need to make money and uh, and then you need to make it work or you need to make whatever the company goal is. But um, if it's a non-profit, maybe it's not money, it's something else. But still, at the end, it has to do something and you be useful for something. So definitely, and also another thing, yeah, would be nice also that uh, people could learn some of the communication skills, So also writing a report. It's a bit like the, the documentation writing for the, for the developers, mm-hmm. but it's needed. I mean, you need to write a report of why you chose a, ch- a certain model, why you trained it that way, why those parameters, why, 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 and then it has to be there. And if it's not possible, then it has to also be justified and uh, people have to, explain why 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 it was not possible to do
0: exactly and then that other part that i also see that people struggle with once they get into doing this this work in industry is it's something i've noticed has come for people that have started in the this profession probably in the last 10 years not people that it Ten years ago, when I was looking at people that were starting, they were in working in, D- in ML and data science. A lot of them were coming from like pure academia, like "Hey, I just finished my PhD in statistics or physics or computer science," and they're used to working in a lab environment where they are working on a project and they're getting peer review constantly, and they have advisors that they can ask, and they're also asking their fellow classmates. But it seems like the recent influx of people from different backgrounds that don't go through that academic rigor. It's more of, I don't want to say it's ego-focused, although I have seen that of like, Hey, I'm the one working on this project. I'm doing this in my notebook. I'm going for that, that amazing best accuracy. And if there's nobody who's a technical lead or a manager who knows anything about data science work or software in general, something can get shipped to production that is completely unmaintainable yeah, or yeah. it's full of bugs and you yeah. just, you leave it up to that one person to fix their own, you know, code or their script basically that they've written. And it might've been a useful project and it may have been making money. It might've been serving results on a website or something, but, if it's going down all the time because the code is written terribly or it's just unstable. I mean, do you see that as a a really big issue about people working in deployed ML who don't know how to write a unit test?
2: So (laughs) that's another topic. (laughs) So another thing that I think has changed, I don't know if you remember that article of the sexist profession in the 21st century. It was an article I think on Harvard Business Review that was saying, when was that? Was that before the pandemic? So must have been 2018, 2019. And they brought something like uh, the sexiest job in the 21st century is the data scientist. And there was this, uh, now I don't remember exactly, but there was this long thing about the data scientist that it's kind of a superhero and he knows how to do everything. So he knows how to do the models, he knows how to do the data preparation, he knows how to do the deployment, and he knows how to do the the maintenance and the whole thing. So I think this one has changed. This perception, I think it was connected to working in a lab when data science was more of a research topic and that's correct but it's not like that anymore now that the, the the data science the data the machine learning models have come out of the lab and they've moved into the industry environment where as i said it's more like an engineering problem uh, many uh, slightly different data professional figures have emerged so there is not only this one guy <laughs> who does everything but there are many people so there is the data analyst who does the report there is the data scientist who does the models and then there is the data engineer, and that's the one who takes care of the data and takes care of the um, uh, productionization of whatever the data scientist has produced. So at the end, it's a lab. And in the lab, uh, there are different competencies. So, and there must be somebody who applies uh, the development principles or also to, uh, to the productionization of machine learning models. So it means all the testing, the unit testing of the models also. Uh, but also uh, uh, the general testing, the stress testing, if there are many people accessing the website and uh, and you know the model doesn't manage to compute the right prediction for everybody. Um, so all these things have to be taken into account. It, it becomes, yeah, exactly, as I said, more of a, a, a co- common effort, which includes also engineering problems. And there are different figures for that as well. There are people who are more onto creating the models but there are people also who are more on creating the quality of the export of the model uh, and the reliability of the model and this this has changed this is something that uh, um, is there is not anymore the superhero uh, but there are more slightly different professional figures at least what i've seen um, in different data science labs yeah now
0: so working with universities as you do now do you think that that job persona is being served?
2: Uh, uh, <laughs>
0: the one uh, the one that is focused on MLOps effectively. Like, hey, I need to stitch together all the work from the data engineer yeah. and the data scientist to do DevOps deployment and like the person who's building that CICD pipeline, yeah. who's setting up, you know, the monitoring system who's making sure that every REST request that comes in is scaled through auto-scaling, that there's a load balancer in there, that we have the ability to do, you know, shadow deployments or A-B testing. And every prediction that comes out is being written back to a data warehouse so that we can do evaluation, so we can do, you know, attribution analysis. Do you think that universities are thinking about that and preparing people for that role?
2: They are starting. So I see some, uh, there are some courses now, I've seen a few um, that are starting this kind of more engineering kind of profile, Um, but they are starting, it's only the beginning. Uh, I've seen a few, Uh, I mean, some some courses, they start having this kind of uh, uh, specialization in the data uh, set, the data space uh, professions. Um, but it's only a few a lot of the courses are still on the data scientists the accuracy the models and and uh, this kind of stuff but they're starting i'm optimistic i'm optimistic it's it's going to it's going to get better um also as i said many um uh data engineering courses are also coming back re re-proposing the uh the idea of the data warehouse uh, as i said for a while uh, I mean, it, it it was completely abandoned and then now it's coming back in one of these data engineering courses. So it's starting. Um, I'm not sure they are completely producing as many data engineers as we need. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, I, I see some signals.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that as well, just from the volume of people that have contacted me or that I interact with, everybody wants to do ML until they know what it is. <laughs> Usually they're like, wow, that, that doesn't really sound that interesting. Just using, you know, scikit-learn or, you know, using these R packages. Like, I really, I want to solve the problems. Like, well, yeah, that's, that's data science, but stop thinking about the algorithm. It's, it's important. You need to know how it works, but the exciting part of it is talking to the business and finger and hearing, we have this problem that we think your team might be able to help us with and then you get that creativity of of talking to a dozen people at the company and saying hey do you want to meet and let's figure this out like this is a challenge and let's use our our creativity and our our insight and wisdom and build something amazing together and then saying okay we need two software engineers and we need you know four data engineers yeah when people see it into action for the first time and, and when they're new to these roles, they get really excited and they're like, this is what I want to do. But there's not a lot of people thinking about some of those other roles. It seems like people are still focused on that. They still see like, oh, the data scientist is the the center of, of mm-hmm. all of this. And it's like, not really like by volume of work that's that's done, the data engineer and the software engineer are doing most of it. And the data scientist is, is tuning stuff and and testing hypotheses and the analyst as well you know and i've even seen ml teams in industry that they don't even have analysts embedded in them mm-hmm. you're like well who who's doing the statistical analysis of all your data i didn't see the data scientist issue a report on your features yeah. so who's doing that like oh we didn't know we needed to do that like, yeah it's it's pretty yeah. important yeah yeah so but i i
2: think this is this is the big change in the, you know, the organization of the lab of the last few years. Maybe with the pandemic, I don't know. <laughs> but but this is the biggest change, definitely. That you you don't need one person. One person only cannot do everything. You need different professional figures. Yeah,
0: definitely not. Not in today's cloud architecture. And particularly if you're working for a big company and a lot yeah. of money's on the line. There's there could be a hundred people touching a product, a project at a large company. As it should be, you should have all those people looking at it.
2: Yeah, as it should be, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it has become a kind of a software development. I mean, it's not software, but it's this kind of um, process.
0: So, shifting gears to tooling now,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know the the company that you work for. Um, when we're looking at how tools have evolved to support data engineering tasks with respect to data science things like the consumption of data for purposes of business insight or mm-hmm. to make money or create efficiency well as we said earlier you know 20 something years ago 30 years ago everything was roll your own very painful very time consuming but probably fun i mean for for doing everything from scratch the first time that you do it. But as as time has gone on, there's been open source tools that have been developed that simplify that process. And a, a whole generation of people are entering into data science and ML with free to use packages that are out there. That even though it's free and there's a lot of examples out there, it doesn't mean it's simple. So companies have sprung up that offer you know, managed services to, to do this, to simplify it, not to make it easier, but to simplify it to make it not harder, if you get what I mean. Like it, yeah. it makes it so that you, it's, it's more challenging to break things when you're using a managed service, uh, but it also means that you're not dealing with stuff that you probably don't want to be spending time dealing with. Like Dependency yeah. management and...
2: Yeah, so I, I am a big fan of people understanding what they are doing. Um, so once or twice, but then at the end, you have a deadline and you have to hurry up. And uh, often the problems are very similar. So you have the same kind of data, you need to perform the same kind of KPI. And then at the end, you have to feed the same kind of model. So often um, what you get is a very known problem. So in this case, recycling is definitely uh, a good thing. Um, so Nime uh, is a based on a, a graphical user interface. So it's based on this drag and drop thing. Mm-hmm. So you have these blocks instead of writing instructions. Uh, it's visual programming. So it, it removes the coding barrier. Of course, it doesn't remove the algorithm barrier. So they, you still need to know the algorithms. Um, the coding barrier. I mean, it, it's uh, it's easier, uh, especially for the data engineer. So you connect to uh There are many connectors for different data sources. You just mm-hmm. use this node, and it does everything under the hood. You don't know what it does, and it connects to whatever source. You get the data, and that's it. So that's the actually for the data engineering part is much much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have all these other blocks and you perform all the things that you are supposed to perform. Each block is dedicated to a given task. And, and then you, you, know, you bring your data from A to B and you build your sequence of blocks uh, to perform this operation. Um, I don't know, people should code, people should not code. They always ask me that. I think people should do what they feel, feel most comfortable with. If they feel comfortable coding, they can code. If they feel more comfortable using the drag and drop, they use the drag and drop. Uh, sometimes they can't program, so they can they they only can use the drag and drop, um, you know, philosophy. Um, sometimes they can program, but it's actually faster uh, to rebuild uh, the same sequence of nodes rather than rewriting uh, writing the uh, coding instructions. Uh, sometimes you use the drag and drop. Uh, workflow for prototyping if you want to see if it works it's working and then you code it i mean you can choose whatever you want also nine is it's open source but we say that it's open so that means that uh, it's open to be integrated also with python with r with javascript with java with i don't know all possible coding uh, pro- um, programming languages So, I mean, as I said, you can decide to code, you can decide not to code, you can decide to code a bit in some of of the Python nodes, for example, and you can do the rest rest in in low code. I mean, you decide whatever you feel comfortable with. It's, uh, I mean, of course we could, code everything we could write everything in assembler right that's also <laughs> yeah. an option let's not <laughs> but i don't know why yeah. so uh, yeah sure i mean you can do it once as i said you learn it you know what it is uh, but then the re- when it's routine work then you can use the um the, the the low code approach that that works too
1: have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. i try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on. You can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topenddevscom slash sign up, and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs, along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Yeah, and praise that I have for
0: your company's tool uh, in places that I've seen it employed extremely successfully. And I'm a huge fan of it because of what you mentioned. I mean, first off, I've used it for prototyping. Uh, if I'm if I'm under the gun and I'm like, hey, I've got three days to figure out what approach I'm going to use here and what feature data I can trash and what needs to be augmented or cleaned up, you can't beat a tool like that because you can get that insight and issue a bunch of, of builds to see what results are if you you know if you know how to do it manually. And you're using a tool like that uh, for a seasoned professional, you can get those answers so much faster and be like, all right, I know exactly the direction. Mm. Or I can rule out out of the 12 things that I need to test, I can rule out 10 of them. And I can get that answer in two hours rather than like, can I go in and open up an IDE and write, you know, 12 different scripts that may or may not be a bunch of copy paste. Or can I, you know, write these these eleven functions that I'm going to call from all of these different scripts? That's going to take me six hours to write all that code. Um, exactly. So I don't, and it's throwaway code. I'm not using that for the production implementation. I'm doing a design, and I'm trying to figure out what direction I'm going in, and I need rapid prototyping. So the tool is awesome for that. But or in addition, uh, what I wanted to to call out is for people that understand the math and the statistics behind these algorithms and their approaches, but their their choice in career progression has not led them down into the path of, you know, air quote, big data, uh, <laughs> or into doing stuff with software. They're accountants, they're physicians, actuarials, yeah. Exactly. Scientists working with ecology or paleontologists, yeah. you know, people that are highly intelligent human beings, highly educated, but they've specialized their knowledge in a place that it's irrelevant for them to learn how to write Python code uh, yeah. in object oriented fashion. They just don't need to do that. So tools like this, you can get something that, that gives you the solution that you need that solves a problem and make it so that it's consumable. And if you need to take that solution and build some massive infrastructure around it, like, hey, you know the, the paleontologist built this amazing model that, that figures out where we're gonna dig next season. And we need to make sure that this is updated for 1300 locations around the planet. And we're gonna divert research funding to this so we need this to really perform. You can take that entire pipeline and all of the attributes associated with it and use it as your template or as your blueprint for building that extreme scale production deployment, which might be like, hey, we can hand this to software engineers and they can they can just run with this.
2: Yeah, there are many solutions. Once you decide to go for deployment, there are many solutions. Yes. Of course, you need a better, better thing than the, just the prototype you have built, then the, you, have, you have a bunch of best practices to implement. You have also a bunch of other softwares that, uh, for example, I don't know, NIME has two products, so the other <laughs> one would be the one that helps with the IT infrastructure. Yep. I mean, there are a bunch of uh, yeah solutions for that, but definitely uh, NIME was thought uh, since the beginning to be fast, so to, to be fast in creating uh, um, a data um, application. Uh, also for people who can't program, uh, they can't or they don't want to. I mean, sometimes it's just a time issue. Yeah, yeah. Can't for confirm. example, we had a we had a project with a a hospital and uh, you know with nurses and, and doctors. They they don't have the time to program. There is no way you can no. convince them to write to, to learn to write a line of program. They're too busy and they you know they they would build uh, some they would wanted to isolate some episodes and you know they would build their pipeline i mean it was it was not too complicated and you know they would manage to isolate the episodes they wanted to find and they were very happy with that so that's yeah that's exactly the goal yeah
0: yeah and that speaks volumes to the direction that a lot of that the industry in general is going with with these tools that are like the the company that tools that your company offers is that the democratization of approaches to advanced in yesteryear research only algorithms that are now in the mainstream making that so that you can put the power of that into the hands of the people that really know the problem because you can have somebody who's one of the finest software engineers on the planet who knows everything there is to know about you know distributed systems and networking and you can have all this massive volume of knowledge about computers but if you tell them to solve something in a hospital they're not going to have no, any idea where to go they're be no. like, uh, I need to interview a bunch of doctors and nurses and say <laughs> what is this problem and where's the data, what does that data mean
2: No, yeah. no, of course I, I work with the, with these people from time to time and I have no clue um, I, I need to rely on what they tell me you know, we should do. So sometimes I help them, but the knowledge stays with them. Um, yes. I, I I don't know. I, I'm not an expert of that domain. Uh, the, the, this happens often. And that's where, uh, so collaboration between the, the people who are a bit more into the data science, but also the domain expert is necessary. And if you empower them to, Work with you, or even to work alone, you, you find so they can build fantastic solutions. It, it's really, it's really nice sometimes that uh, you know to work with them and see how you know they find these things that they wanted to find. Ah. <laughs> and they are yep. all very, very uh, excited. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we work with a number of professionals often, and they are not necessarily uh, coders. So sometimes they know how to code, they just they they just don't have the time. Yeah. Also pharmacists we, we've worked with a lot of uh, lawyers, we've worked with lawyers hmm. so that's uh, yeah that's another one that uh, you know because they use the, the text processing extension and then with the text processing extension they try to find for example previous um, cases and how they were sold or um, I don't know something And uh, yeah, that's how they do it. Interesting. And, you know they build together this uh, uh, pipeline of text processing blocks and then at the end they get uh, to isolate or to search into the database of public cases. Now don't ask me, I'm not a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so these, uh, the, these uh, previous previous cases, and they find how it was sold and what was the case and if there is a precedent and this kind of thing. So yeah, it, it happens very often. Paleontologists, now I've never worked with a paleontologist. <laughs> no, that, that has never <laughs> happened to me. But it would be cool. It would be it very would cool. Be. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: Google. a, a sight lot better than sitting on the search interface for LexisNexis, where all of those legal <laughs> cases are, and trying to write whatever archaic, ancient search query format that they use there. I've seen that interface before. I had to use it at a previous company, and it's like, really, this is this is what we're at. This feels like the nineteen seventies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really painful. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion and I could continue this for hours, um, but I'm sure you have stuff to do. Um, So before we we leave today, uh, could you tell people where to go in order to test out your company's products and Mm. also how they can get in contact with you if they have questions?
2: Well, uh, okay, let's start from the pro- company product. Uh, the open source product is uh, the name is NIME Analytics Platform. Uh, you go on to nime.com and, and then there is our website. You find uh, you know, the whole description of the product. There is a button download, you download it and you start using it. Um, if you need help uh, still on the web page, there is a learning um, tab. And in the learning, you find all options, courses, um, um, beginner spaces, uh, I don't know, examples, challenges. You find all sorts of uh, tools uh, that, that you can use to learn. The challenges are the new ones. I'm very proud of those. Uh, there, there, we had 40 challenges this year. We just had the award for the people who did the best solutions. Um Yeah, so you you can download some of those. We are going to start with a season two, but that's just a rumor. You didn't hear it from me (laughs) Uh, (laughs) next year. Um, So this is the software. If you want to talk to me, um, then I'm on LinkedIn. I'm the only Rosaria or one of the few Rosaria Silip on LinkedIn. So you will find find me very, very um, easily. Um, Yeah, then you can send me a message. I check my LinkedIn uh, profile often and yeah.
0: All right, Rosaria, it's been an absolute pr- pleasure talking with you today. This is a really fun discussion. And i just like to thank you for coming on the show and, and discussing, you know, all of these topics. And, uh, yeah. Um, so until next time, everybody.
2: Thank I've you for inviting host. me. <laughs>
0: You're most welcome. So until next time, everybody, uh, I've been Ben Wilson. And we'll see you next time.